My guest this episode is Amanda Sopa, a speech-language pathologist in Washington, D.C. In grad school, she worked with clients who used AAC and knew that this was the field she needed to be in. Amanda has been working with students with complex communication needs using AAC for the past 11 years. But over the past few years, she's really focused on how to help her students with cerebral vision impairment or CVI to use AAC. She went back to school and recently finished a master's program and is now also certified as a teacher of visually impaired. But her passion for AAC is always at the forefront and she enjoys passing along her knowledge as an adjunct professor at Gallaudet University. So, Amanda, thank you for coming and chatting on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So, let's start by asking you some just general questions about the AAC journey so far. What is it that's got you to where you are and what sort of things have happened to you in the uh, past 11 years or so? Sure. So... Like, I, like you said, in grad school, I had a few clients who used AAC, and, you know, actually those clients had pretty complex communication needs, but I really thought I wanted to work with students who had, like, pretty severe behaviors, and I got there, and then I realized, well, duh, that's AAC still, because <laughs> all of those behaviors are right. because they can't communicate. So, I really, from, like, my first day as a CFY was down in AAC and the school that I worked at, a lot of the students there were on Vantage Lights, <laughs> so now outdated, but still same Unity software. <laughs> so a lot of students had that and really I was lucky at that school, the supervisor immediately sent me to a LAMP training, had me go to PALS, and so... I feel like I got a lot of knowledge early on that I didn't necessarily get in grad school about AAC, and I'm sure other people feel that way too. Fast forward a couple years, I really knew at that point, like, my focus was AAC, and I really only wanted to do AAC, and so the school in Washington, D.C. had posted for an AT specialist, and I thought I have to take it. So I went and I interviewed and I commuted from Baltimore to Washington, D.C. miserably <laughs> for six months. But then I knew, like, I'm committed to the school and I'm going to do it. And so there we had the school for about 275 students. I would say over 80% probably are non-speaking or have some speech but still need AAC when I got there, only six of those 275 had a high-tech device. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how I felt. <laughs> um, and I had the pleasure, I am still friends with her, but this teacher came into my office and was like, um, I have 12 nonverbal students in my classroom. What are you going to do about it? And I was like, <laughs> I guess I'm going to do something. And so I went on this journey of kind of getting the school to agree to let me have help parents do funding packets so that all of our students could get their own devices. And so at this point, I'm really excited. This school year, we have over 185 students who use high-tech AAC. We had more who graduated that I've helped get AAC for, and we still have like another 30 funding packets in the works. So I'm really proud of that <laughs> in nine years, That's almost awesome. nine years. That's an awful lot of it's a lot of devices. Mm -hmm. 
there was one time like 10 showed up on the same day <laughs> and it literally felt like Christmas and my office was just like a sea of boxes with accent devices. But yeah, so a lot of the students I work with are pretty complex. I do a lot with students who use eye gaze, a lot, some students who are switch scanners, and then some direct select. And a lot of my students have CVI or cerebral vision impairment, which I kind of talked about in my bio, and I've really gotten on a rabbit hole with that. So I'm sure I will talk a little bit about that later. <laughs> and in relation to MintSpeak, paradigm that we talk a lot about is um, when do you recall first coming across that and what were your first thoughts about it? So I'm going to be honest, in grad school we had an AAC class and the AAC professor had a night where she brought in a ton of devices and she literally had the, I think it was a vantage light with MinSpeak and kind of put it in the corner and was like, this is the most confusing vocabulary system. Like, <laughs> we're, we're not really going to deal with this, but it's an option. And so my initial impression was from my professor, like, oh, we're not really going to use this. But then at the school that I got to, almost every student there used some sort of MinSpeak system. Mm -hmm. And they had done school-wide LAMP trainings there. So everyone was, like, really familiar with it. And, yeah, I did the LAMP training. And then I went to PALS. And honestly, after hearing Bruce talk about MinSpeak, mm -hmm. and I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity for that. But it was just, like, a total game changer. And I feel like his explanation made me really understand it and understand why it was so important. Right. And like you said, it's it's not unusual for people's first experience with MinSpeak to be a little negative. But as you say, you know, once you get to understand it a little more, it's not quite as horrendous once you've done that. I love it. It's and not horrendous at all. So so, uh, so what what's your passion now? Uh, you know, what are you focusing on? You said CVI. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing, why you're doing it. Yeah, so I don't know if I'm assuming other SLPs around the country are kind of facing the same challenges as me, but there is a deficit of at least 30,000, I think, TBIs. So it is really hard to come across a teacher with the visually impaired. And when you do come across them, we are really coming at AAC from different views. They're really looking at visual development and vision skills, and we're looking at language as SLPs. And so I did meet some TBIs, and they were so helpful in getting me some background knowledge. But anytime I ask their advice about AAC for like a particular student, I immediately like disagreed, didn't want anything to do with their advice, because they were just coming at it from a very, very different perspective than right. me. And so finally... The TBI who had been mentoring me was like, why don't you just join a program? Like, just get the degree yourself, and then, you know, we can go from there. And then you'll have both sides, and maybe we can have different conversations. And our conversations are not different <laughs> now that I have the degree. It's still the same. But it's it was really illuminating to be in a grad program and hear what they're learning, because it is different than what SLPs are learning. And so... Since then, I have had the fortune to do some presentations, like full-day presentations or broken-up webinars, and talk about CVI. And my main goal has been to break down for teachers and therapists, like, 
here's the vocabulary, here is what it means. And so these are the questions that you should be asking the TBI. And if you're getting these responses, here's how you can bring it back to language and kind of get their systems from a language perspective instead okay. of just from a vision perspective. So yeah, that's been a few years now that I just graduated in December. And it's really, I think, made a huge difference in my practice, especially the neuro class I took. Okay. Really went down a rabbit hole there. <laughs> um, was calling neurologists to help me like look at MRIs, but don't recommend that for most best LPs. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I've been really focused on CBI, I would say, in the past few years. And in order to make systems that are currently available, work for folks with CBI, what sort of things have you had to do in terms of modifying things? Because I'm <clears throat> pretty sure that the off-the-shelf vocabulary programs, even from PRC, are not going to be what you need, and you're going to have to do something with them. Yeah. So, initially, I was using them, like, off-the-shelf, so I think you may have heard me talk about this before, but I feel pretty strongly that for students with CVI, it's really important to look at a system that uses MIMSpeak. I think it's essential to reduce what they really have to visually scan and visually interpret, and by using multi-meaning icons, you are automatically making it easier for them mm. to learn AAC. And so over the years, though, I've really discovered that, well, two things. So one, for contrast, I'll be honest, don't really love limp words for uh, life with the VI symbols. Mm -hmm. It's still really overwhelming, right? It's about the complexity of the device. But you you do not, like need contrast for, for some things. And so, for instance, the play icon is white dice on a white background. Okay. So for something like that, I might change the background of that to like a bright green or a bright orange, something that I know is going to really make a contrast so they can see those white dice. Other than that, on like homepage, I'm not I'm not changing icons. I've come across a lot of kids where like on the main page, people change out the icon to be like Roman bubble letters or photographs. I say stick to the icon. It's the multi-meaning icons that mean the most. And then the second thing I've done, I forget what you called it, but I call it backwards mapping. Okay. Word strategy was that the initial? That, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was word strategy, and uh, yes, you you said you you've sort of um, rediscovered word strategy. I did without realizing it. So another thing, I run into this with a lot of students, but I have been particularly running into this with students with CVI is that. For preposition words or question words or adverbs, they were often going to where the second hit would be. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in, you would hit the bridge and then you would hit the treasure chest. And often my students were hitting the treasure chest and then looking near where the bridge should be, but not seeing the icon, obviously. Um, and so... I now know it was an original strategy, but <laughs> I went ahead with a coworker and we, for adverbs, for prepositions, for the social words, conjunctions, determiners, for every category, we then went in and made them the second hit. So now the first hit, and we still left, you know, the original, but now if you do hit the treasure chest and then you hit the bridge, it's also going to say in. 
Yeah. And the other thing we did when we backwards mapped was to add color coding to the icon. So we use purple for prepositions. So the bridge is purple on every secondary page or we use like a bright blue for adverbs. So the adverb key is bright blue. And that's also been like really critical for kids with CVI because we sort of use the color as like a salient feature. And so we talk about like, oh, you know, we're talking about action words today. So remember, like we're always going to end on our green action man or, you know, goal is to add a preposition to that action. So after our green action man, we're looking for a purple word. And it's really made a huge difference for, for students. They have a clearer idea now of like where, where those should be. And yeah, so most of my modifications are if the icon was not really contrasted, changing the background and then doing this word strategy or mapping them backwards. And then a lot of my students with CVI, some have used Unity 84 sequenced, but some that's been a little too many icons, a little too much visual scanning. And so we had to go to Unity 45. When you go to Unity 45, you sacrifice some of the language for access. And I didn't love that. I really felt like the kids deserved the same language they would have gotten on 84. And so during the pandemic, down a rabbit hole again, my coworker and I figured out every word on 84 that was not on 45 and then matched them into like the most likely location where it could go. And... I'll be honest, we had to call in uh, the AAC expert, Gail Van Tatenhove, and get her to Zoom with me because you couldn't backwards map on 45 as easily because there wasn't necessarily room to do that on every secondary page. Uh, So she helped us figure out how we could both add every word and backwards map. And, you know, for for those folks who are listening who who aren't aware of it, the, the remind them that the original, the very, very original word strategy, which came before Unity, um, did in fact have you chose an icon from the core, and then you modified it with a button for a preposition, uh, or interjection, or determiner. And we at the time, when we were revising it for Unity, thought that seemed a little backwards, particularly because we knew that all these words were part of a, a typically a closed class. So you sort of felt, well, maybe we just do it the other way. So you press a button for all the prepositions or a button for that. And so it seemed to make sense. Um, and that's where that paradigm came about in, in Unity. Uh, but what you've done there is is, is flipping back. But for, for very sound reasons. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, what I like about that is it's a good example where... Sometimes folks get a little tied into the system that they get. So they think, oh, I can't change it because you know, I'm not allowed to, or I'm going to break some paradigm or something, or I'm going to break the motor plan and I can't do anything with it. But the reality is, you know, if you have a strong reason for making modifications, you go ahead and do it. Um, and, and gosh, now you see, now I've got to try and get a copy of that, have a look at it to see how that's working. Yeah, I'll have to send it to you, but mm-hmm. it definitely, Gail was very helpful and honestly also just getting her say yes and tell us a little bit about how it used to be in word strategy 
and you feel like I was doing the yeah. right thing. And so with all these this extra vocabulary, uh, are your clients finding that they use that extra vocabulary? It's, I do. Okay, that's yeah. 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 Um, a lot of them are using the extra vocabulary. In particular, I am tired of everyone targeting good and bad. Okay. And if I hear good and bad as an opinion one more time, I'm going to lose it. <laughs> and so we've been really focusing on using thumbs up blue words and thumbs down blue words. Okay. And I am hearing wonderful adjectives now like disgusting, terrible, phenomenal. Okay. Um, so, yeah, adding that to 45 for my sanity has made a difference. They are using varied vocabulary, so I, I'm excited about it. And I think the other thing that that is sounds like you were you know, explaining to people here sounds to me that once again you're not over focused on getting the perfect icon. It's not going to be the perfect one. It's how you teach it and, and being consistent with it. As you were saying, sure, you're going to change the color, maybe the background on something like. The dice, but you don't feel necessarily the need to change everything. Yeah, definitely not. I try to keep it as true to the original because, again, like, you know, one of the things I think that I argue with TVIs about is I'll do the apple. <laughs> the yeah. eat apple also has a little bumblebee on top mm. of it. And, you know, the TVI will, you know, say, well, how do you know they know that's an apple? And how do they see the bee? They definitely don't see the bee. And I have to keep saying, I don't care if they see the bee, and I don't care if they actually know that this apple that I'm holding is the same as this apple on the talker. Mm -hmm. What I want them to know is that this symbol on here in this location that looks like this is the apple symbol. And when I combine the apple with the green action, it's eat. But if I combine the apple with the blue paintbrush, mm -hmm. it's hungry. And so I'm not looking for them to visually recognize every feature of the icon, but by naming them in context, I just want them to get it. So yeah. I try to keep it as close to their original as possible. So moving on just a little bit there um, to a more general questions. Sure. Is there any one thing you can think of that you wished you'd known years ago that you now know and you say, oh, if only I'd have known that when I started, life would have been easier. Yes. <laughs> Mostly, I wish that I had known I didn't need an activity all the time. I feel like in recent years, some of my best therapy has been having conversations with my students and oh, really? coming with not much prepared. I'll, I'll have books or games or things that I know they're interested in. But I've gotten so much more language by just opening up the floor for a conversation with students. I had a student, he just graduated, and I miss him dearly, and I'm hoping to visit him soon. But he didn't have AAC until he came to us at, like, 19. Mm. And he has CP, and he now uses iGaze, and he uses Unity 45 sequence. And... Honestly, he doesn't really want to do activities because he's never just been able to talk or like interject and share his opinion. And gotcha. I wish I had known when I started, like it didn't always have to be some like perfect therapy group. It could literally be a conversation and you can get awesome mm -hmm. language out of that. And sort of related question to that is not only um, 
what do you wish you'd known before you started your career? The other one I like to ask is, have you got any memorable mistakes you've made? Not because I want to show how bad you are, but also to say, what is it that you learn from those mistakes? So I think my biggest mistake was actually probably at the beginning of my SLP career. Like I said, when I the first school I worked at, most students had a Vantage Light or a device, uh, but I didn't know that the first day that I got there. Um, and for about a month, I was using, I was making all sorts of like low-tech boards so that kids could participate. And one day I went to look for something in the cabinet, markers or some nonsense, and there was a pile of six Vantage Lights, and every kid apparently had an AAC device that as the SLP I was not using. Um, so that was kind of like a big oops for me. And now in any classroom I walk into or any other job that I have started, I always find out first, like, how is the student communicating? And don't just kind of blindly go in and be like, I know how I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Um, so it's a, a pretty big fail, I would say. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But you recovered. I recovered from it. You did that well. What if somebody wanted to be the next Amanda? What sort of advice would you give them to um, to get to the point where they felt, as you do, comfortable with your therapy? I think really knowing like, why you're there and why are you doing this? Like, what's really the purpose of everything? And then anything you do is always for that same goal. So, you know, I've done a lot of professional development trainings, uh, but everything's always been related to what I, what my end goal is for kids with complex needs to be able to read, write, and communicate. And so I think just knowing that and then going after that, like figure out, you know, what other knowledge do I need? Who do I need to collaborate with? Who can help me like on this journey, I think is really important. I've had a lot of help uh, over the past 11 years and I'm really grateful for everyone who's helped me. So yeah, I think just keeping at it, have confidence, not too much, admit when you're wrong, <laughs> but uh, just a lot of training and a lot of trial by fire. And you mentioned there you, you've had a lot of help. Are there maybe two or three people that stand out in your memory who have been significant, really, in you know, helping you along? But sort of, as I said, two or three stand out. I'm, there's probably many of them, but, but any that you could think of specifically. Yeah. Um, so actually, my very first closing the gap uh, was like really pivotal, I think, in my speech career. And I saw Karen Kankis. Mm -hmm. And initially, I wasn't going to go because it was from an OT. But I don't know. I just I went. I had heard a lot of people saying her name around the hotel. So I was right. like, well, I guess I should go to that. Um, and honestly, it was just so much information that I, I didn't know about before hearing her talk. Mm -hmm. And it made me go back to school and start really collaborating with OT. And I had some students who were using IKs that were really struggling. And after listening to her about seating and positioning, honestly, just implementing those changes with the OT or PT made a world of difference for AAC. So you know, I actually, I've never really like spoken with her, but I've attended a lot of her trainings and I always feel like I learned something new and everything I've learned from her has 
directly impacted how I work with students. So that's been great. And then like kind of funny and you're probably going to laugh at me. So also my very first closing the gap I presented at and was like a ball of nerves. And afterwards me and my co-presenter actually took a picture with you and we were like so excited that Russell Cross came to our presentation. Um, And honestly, after that, I was really inspired that I at some point wanted to make a difference like that or be giving knowledge to people that they uh, you know, wanted to hear from me, like wanted to hear my lived experiences with speech. So you maybe did not know that, but yeah, you... <laughs> we may cut that bit out. Were so <laughs> <laughs> influential. Um, and honestly, Gail Van Tatenhove was mm-hmm. a really big one. She has very kindly answered a lot of emails um, and collaborated with me on a couple of presentations and... I learn so much from her every time I see her present, every time I talk to her, and it's been a real privilege to have that opportunity with her. And it, you're not the only person who mentions Gail. Uh, and just a reminder, folks, to uh, maybe new to the podcast, that they can go back and listen to one of the original discussions I had with Gail uh, last year. So we had that there. But Gail has certainly been a big influence for many people in AAC who continues to be a big influence. She's just a, a consummate clinician. So people have helped you along the way. What about resources? What sort of things have you found um, that have helped you become a better clinician? What sort of resources that have you found? What do you use? You know. Yeah, the AAC profile has okay. made a massive difference in my therapy and assessment and I also just took a stab in the dark and emailed Tracy, and okay. she kindly also had phone conversations with me to help me use it as a better tool. But the AAC profile has really opened my eyes as a tool to look at, you know, I was maybe super focused on linguistic, and the student didn't even know how to turn their device on, so what did it matter? <laughs> um, so that's been really helpful. Uh, also, just recognizing like good language intervention is good language intervention and we don't need to reinvent the wheel for AAC. So I really like the expanding expression tool uh, or the EET and a lot of SLPs use it in schools with speaking children and I love using it with my students who use AAC. It's been a really great tool to kind of expand language Mm -hmm. and expand an understanding of things you can say about other things or people uh so really once i figured out language intervention is language (laughs) intervention uh just a lot of general resources for speech that are also super applicable to aac that was again the expanded expanding expression toolkit okay i'm gonna admit i i don't know that one so so what what is it generally about how does it what's the general idea behind it yeah so it's multi-sensory and it's really a way to expand written language, but AAC is symbols, right? So also kind of written, but it uses color coding to talk about different categories and they have like a bead on a rope, beads on a rope. Mm -hmm. And you first talk about, you know, whatever the object is. So if it was a dog, like what category is it in? What does it look like? Mm -hmm. What else does it remind you of? Where have you seen it? 
And it kind of just goes through all these different categories. Unfortunately, it is not the same color coding as Unique. Um, But I went to Michael's and bought doll heads and drilled through them. And I made my own ropes (laughs) with (laughs) the color coding that Unity uses so we could continue to, you know, instead of, um, I think green was the category and then orange was the, what does it do? And so then we just swapped it and orange are category noun words and green are our, what does it do? So we can use action words. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Oh, now I'm gonna try and track that down myself, I think. <laughs> uh, now you get the opportunity to debunk a myth. So there are, there are quite a few myths out there about AAC, but um, of all the myths that are out there, which one sort of makes you want to say, no, that's not true? Um, I'm going to relate it to CBI. The one that drives me most insane is hearing that students who have cerebral vision impairment cannot use eye gaze as an access method or cannot use 2D hmm. symbols. They have to use objects and then after they use objects and you can go to photographs and um, it's not true. Mm. A symbol is a symbol, and you're teaching the symbol, so it doesn't really matter. It's always going to represent something else, and so I really wish that people knew that and stopped kind of putting prerequisites right. in there for children who don't, they shouldn't have them, um, and not providing students with systems because they can't figure out an access method because they've already written IVs out because there's a vision impairment. Just because you have a vision impairment doesn't mean you can't use eye gaze. Good. That's a good one to share with folks, I think. And my next little section here is what I call my three C's. And uh, it's where I ask people to tell me a little bit uh, or recommend something related to culture, courses, and clinical practice. And with culture, uh, is there a sort of a book or a movie or an album or something cultural that you'd recommend to people? This is going to be a weird one. Good. (laughs) I've been down at this weird nonfiction rabbit hole about organizational change. So not related to speech. Uh, But I just finished The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And I absolutely loved it. And this like quote that resonated like throughout it is people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Hmm. And, you know, it's also changed now how I think about speech. Like people need to know why I'm doing what I'm doing in order to know what. Uh, but it also can have absolutely no uh, application to speech. And I just I loved the book. It was so good. So what was it called again? The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. Okay, that's a list adder <laughs> for people who are listening, and for me too, I guess. There. And how about is there any course or conference or event particularly that you think people would benefit from attending? And I'm saying that knowing that we're now set here live in uh, Florida at the ATIA conference. I mean, that that's a given. But any, any that you would recommend? Yeah, I think, you know, I often see people asking, like, what conferences or trainings to go to. I highly recommend both ATIA and Closing the Gap. Mm-hmm. And then from my own personal knowledge, I am super excited. I'm enrolled right now in Gail's class on language sample analysis for okay. AAC users. And I think... For anyone looking for something that's more intermediate level and not kind of that beginner AAC level, mm-hmm. uh, I'm really excited about it. The syllabus looks amazing, so yeah. Is that a twelve week, a twelve component? I think it's a twelve week 
mostly asynchronous, but a couple of asynchronous nights. Mm-hmm. And I would certainly recommend, of course, anything that includes data manipulation. This <laughs> is fun by me, so that's yes. fine. Uh, then, finally, in terms of clinical, are there a few tips that you would offer to people to encourage them to achieve best practice? So, one that I already said, please remember, language intervention is language intervention. Okay. Uh, we do not need to reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just collaborating. I feel like it took me a while to feel comfortable you know, asking other people or saying, I don't know X, Y, Z, do you know about that? But I think collaboration is key when you're working with the population of students who have complex needs and you're not going to be the expert in everything. Mm-hmm. Time for a bit of a wrap up here, but in a sentence or two, uh, what do you want people to take away from what you've been telling them today? Don't be afraid to try things. Uh, don't be afraid to make changes to that AAC device if you have a sound reason. Don't be afraid to try high-tech, robust AAC with students who, CDI, with, who have CDI. Perfect. And if people want to contact you with comments or questions, is there a good way to do that? Yes, they can email me. Um, it's Amanda Soper, S-O-P-E-R, S-L-P at gmail.com. So Amanda Soper SLP at gmail.com. Perfect. And I'll add that to the website so people can see that as well. Okay, well, Amanda Soper, SLP, thank you very much for coming and sharing all your knowledge with us and hope you have a good rest of the conference for those of us who are sitting here in the well not sunshine at the it's raining there, we're all, all huddled inside trying to get wet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks a lot.